0: Or he didn't. television show Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous is no longer on the air, but it did generate an entire generation of television shows that were focused on the lifestyles of celebrities. We still see those, don't we? I mean, you can take your pick. We have shows that talk about the home celebrities live in, shows that talk about the places they go on vacation, what kind of cars they drive, what kind of food they eat, and we have this fascination with how the other side lives? How do the rich and powerful live? What do they have? What is their daily routine like? And there's this message that's sort of implied in watching those shows, and that is this is what our goal is. There's sort of that message that's sent this is what you should be modeling yourself after. This is the kind of life one day, if you're lucky, that you can have. This is what you can attain. And although we're probably wise to that message, and we can see that coming. It's still there, isn't it? There's that insinuation that this is the American dream, to live like this. Sometimes those shows that show us how celebrities live can make us feel a little bit better about ourselves, can't they? I mean, we can watch and see how much they spend on a car or a boat or a vacation, and we can think, well, I may pay a lot for what I have, but at least I haven't spent that much. They made more in one day than I'll make in my entire life, and I sure wouldn't have spent it that way. It's kind of comforting to watch that, and we're fascinated with it. And what I want you to do this morning is just imagine that you are gathered around the television with your family and some friends. You've popped some popcorn. You've got a few Cokes there. You're ready to enjoy just a night of being together. And you turn on one of these documentaries. And the opening credits come on, but what's interesting is After you see the opening, instead of featuring a movie star or a a big-name sports hero, instead of featuring a a big-deal businessman or or a millionaire or a billionaire, what if you saw an interview with one of the Ukrainian orphans we visited last summer in a mission trip to the Ukraine? They did an in-depth interview with how he lives from day to day and what little food he receives at meals and how he goes to sleep in a room that's totally devoid of furniture except for 15 beds that that each of those young boys sleep in and that he doesn't bathe except for once a week when they take off all the clothes and they wash them and they hand them back out again. And so he gets that chance to clean up a little bit, but not only does he not have any toys or possessions, he doesn't even get to choose what clothes he wears. It's first come, first serve. Or what if, they did an in-depth documentary on one of the citizens in El Salvador that our group is preparing this week to go visit, to minister to. And what if they talked to a lady there who invited, her, invited them into her home, which just amounted to a lean-to with a dirt floor, and she was more than willing to give all of the food that she had in her home, even if it meant she would go hungry for the rest of the day or, or the week or even longer, because she wanted to make this crew feel at home. What if instead of featuring a celebrity, it featured some of the tear-filled faces of the victims of Hurricane Katrina, as they looked at everything that they had wrapped up in their house, and it's completely gone, and they wondered how they were going to put their lives back together? What if it followed the life of a missionary in a foreign country who had to deal with being laughed out of conversations when he brought up God and Christ? And maybe even had to deal with some persecution from other people of different faiths there that were hostile to his own. And he kept trying to spread God's word and he kept running into roadblocks. If you can imagine how you would feel if you went into a television show expecting one of those rich and famous celebrity interviews and saw instead something like we just described, if you can imagine that feeling of of shock that, that kind of jars you and sort of shakes you out of your comfort zone, then I think we can come close to imagining how Jesus' disciples would have felt when they heard these words and the Sermon on the Plain. As you know, last Sunday we began our series on Jesus' Sermon on the Plain. Matthew records the material as the Sermon on the Mount, and we're probably more familiar with the Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount than we are the way Luke records them right here. But as we focus on this text that Matt read for us so well just a few moments ago, We're going to run into some words from Jesus that that sort of jar us a little bit. They challenge us. Uh, They force us to ask some tough questions to ourselves. And for just a few moments this morning, I want us to be honest with ourselves and to really ask some difficult questions. I mean, this is going to deal with how we use our money. And the way that we take care of ourselves and how we administer to those who are hurting and whether or not we're standing up for God's Word enough to be persecuted for it. And we're going to ask some tough questions. You may have heard that old phrase about preaching that now he's quit preaching and gone to meddling. You guys have heard that before, I'm sure. That's kind of how I feel this morning because these are some tough issues. They're difficult. They hit us close to home. And what I want us to remember is, we go through and are totally honest with ourselves is to remember that we serve a God that can do the impossible. In fact, Luke, when he's talking about the rich young ruler and the possibility of the rich to inherit the kingdom of God, he would even record Jesus saying that. With man it is impossible, with God all things are possible. And so as we're honest with ourselves, let's focus on that fact. We serve a God who can do the impossible. And so as we think about this basic training session, you'll remember that the words that we just read happened right after Jesus had spent an entire night in prayer to select his 12 apostles. And so we can see the value that Jesus put on leadership, especially the people to whom he would entrust the gospel once he had left the earth. And so we have here their first training session. These are kind of the first words that Jesus would share with them. And so let's go to the scene there on the plane, the level place, This picture of modern-day Galilee might help set the stage for us a little bit, maybe give us a sense of what it would be like to gather around the master teacher, and just imagine what it would have sounded like to hear these words from Jesus. As he begins his sermon, to hear him say, Blessed are you poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Imagine if that were the first words out of his mouth. Because although first century society was very different than our society, human beings haven't changed very much over the years. And even back then, they looked up to those people who were rich and wealthy and powerful. In fact, back then, they associated physical blessings with spiritual faithfulness. So in other words, if you're doing well physically, well, you must be doing well spiritually because you're being blessed. And so when they looked at people who were rich or powerful or famous, they saw that as a sign that they were doing something right. They were serving God. And so they would have come waiting for Jesus to tell them what kind of people to model their lives after, and Jesus says, blessed are the poor. You can just imagine the almost an audible gasp there. Really? Is, is that your opening line? Blessed are the poor? This would have been far different as he talks about the poor and the hungry and the weeping and those who are persecuted. This would have been different than what they were used to. It's interesting to remember because throughout the book of Luke, Luke tells us that the gospel is for everyone, even for those misfits or outcasts of society. You see, Luke apparently has a very big heart for those who are outcasts. He records all of these times when Jesus deals with people that society wanted to ignore. We see him dealing with a man who'd been possessed by demons and lived in a cave, and no one wanted to talk to him. But Jesus ministers to him. We see him dealing with Samaritans. We see Jesus speaking and healing lepers. And you couldn't get much more excommunicated than being a leper in the first century. And constantly throughout Luke's gospel, I would challenge you to read it and just look for all the misfits and the outcasts that come to Jesus and that Jesus ministers to. And so it's fitting that Jesus begins this basic training session by saying, rather than looking at those who are rich and powerful, you ought to look at those who are outcasts. You ought to look at those that you've kind of pushed off to the side or marginalized, the poor, the disenfranchised, the people you're not interested in associating with. Those are the people that might have a little more on the ball than you would think. In fact, Luke records this phrase from Jesus that physicians aren't needed for the, the those who are well; they're needed for the sick. And then he would follow that up by saying, "He has not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance." And that was Jesus' mission: the misfits, the outcasts. Those were the people that Jesus was reaching the gospel to. So we run into the first of our blessings, and then later on, there's a woe for every one of the blessings Jesus gives. He says, "Blessed are the poor." For yours is the kingdom of heaven, and then he would say, Woe to you who are rich. And so, the question we have to ask ourselves is, How do we move from being rich to having an attitude like the poor? Catherine and I recently bought our first home. Last month, we paid our first mortgage bill, and I can tell you that after you get done writing that check blessed are the poor becomes a pretty comforting thought. You know, you feel like you can relate to that. Blessed are the poor. And, and sometimes we get caught up in all the bills that we have to pay and the things that we have to take care of, and we can forget that we might not feel rich, but compared to the country around us, we are very rich. And I don't have to remind you of things that are taking place in the world that prove to us we're wealthy beyond the belief of most other citizens. Once we get past our, our neighborhoods and our cities and our country and see how the rest of the world lives, and I want us to understand that there's, there's not an inherent holiness in being rich or in being poor. In other words, our holiness, our, our, our faithfulness, is not determined by what we have. It's determined, rather, by how we use what we have. I think it's interesting that the writer in Proverbs would ask this from God. In Proverbs chapter 30, verses 8 and 9, he would say, Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food allotted to me, lest I I say it and deny you who is Lord, and lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. In other words, he didn't want so little possessions that he would be so poor he'd have to steal or lie and cheat to get what he needed, but he didn't want to have so much that he would start relying on that rather than God. And so rather than praying for us to have a great deal of possessions or thinking we have to get rid of all of our possessions, the Proverbs writer here says, Give me neither poverty nor riches. I want to be somewhere in between where I can use what I have to serve God, but always rely on Him. And you see, when we deal with wealth, we, we do have some difficult questions to ask ourselves. Because God has used poor people and wealthy people throughout the Bible. You remember in the Old Testament, some of the people God used powerfully were wealthy. Joseph was second in command, second only to Pharaoh over all of Egypt. David would become the king of Israel. And then we know the wealth that Solomon had after he became king. And so we see that God was able to use those people with wealth mightily. But let me ask you a question. What did these people have in common? The people that God uses, their wealth and resources, what do they have in common? I think a common thread that runs through all of these and others that God has used is that they did not aim to obtain great wealth. They aimed to serve God. Joseph did not set out to be second in command to Pharaoh. He was placed in Potiphar's house. He was sold into slavery, and he was given an opportunity to commit adultery with Potiphar's wife. And if he had done that, he probably could have gotten away with it, or at least tried to. He could have stayed in Potiphar's house. He could have had all the wealth and the comfort that came from the position he'd obtained. But rather than trying to attain wealth, he said, I'm going to serve God. And that got him thrown in prison. Later on, God was able to raise him up to have those riches and that wealth. And because he wanted to serve God, he was able to feed all kinds of people that would have gone hungry from a famine. God used him and used his wealth and resources mightily. When David was down in the front lines with those soldiers that were facing off with Goliath, no one would have blamed him if he'd just gone home to the safety and the comfort of his father's house. But he didn't. He decided he was going to serve God rather than go back to the comfort that was waiting for him at home. And God rewarded him. And David was able to use his reign as king of Israel to further God's cause. We know the choice that Solomon was given. Solomon chose wisdom over riches and fame and anything else he could have because he wanted to lead God's people better. And although at the end of his life Solomon did allow his faith to be turned away by his wives, it was not before he did a great deal of good. left us some powerful words in the Old Testament. And so when I think about wealth, I want us to look at one of the misfits that Luke writes about, one of the, the outcasts that wasn't quite inside the in group in society, sort of on the fringes. It's a widow that Luke 21 tells us about. In the first few verses of Luke chapter 21, we see Jesus and his disciples watching a widow donate two mites to the temple treasury. It's interesting to see Jesus' response. After he looked up, he saw the gifts putting their, the rich putting their gifts in the treasury in verse 1. He also saw a poor widow putting in two mites. So he said, Truly I say to you that this poor widow has put in more than all, for all these out of their abundance have put in offerings for God, and she out of her poverty put in all the livelihood that she had. Notice from Jesus' response, His concern wasn't for the amount that was put in. His concern was on how the money was being used. And so when we think about dealing with wealth, Jesus' concern is what are we doing with what we have? Now, sometimes when we think about the, the concept of blessed or the poor, it can be confusing and it's difficult for us. Because you remember the rich young ruler came to Jesus and Jesus told him that he needed to sell all his possessions and give it to the poor. But then there were other times we see people who were very wealthy, like the Old Testament heroes we mentioned, that were able to use that wealth to further God's work. And so where do we come down on this? I think the question we want to ask ourselves if we want to discover how the rich can become like the poor is rather than asking how much is too much to ask a different question. Who am I serving with what I have? You see, it's tempting for us to want to find the line. Well, how much is too much? How much am I allowed to make before I need to start selling and giving things away? What's what's the line? What's the limit that I can come up to? And I think that it's dangerous for us to try to define the line. And let me illustrate why I believe that with a scene that's very familiar to any of you who've been on a long road trip with your family. And if you grew up with a brother or sister, or if you're a parent or grandparent, and you have two children sitting in the back seat of the car, I can almost guarantee you, if you're on the road long enough, what's going to happen is that at some point, one of the children or both of them is going to set out a dividing line in the middle and say, this is my side and that's your side. You stay over on your side. Don't bother me. I think I I see a few nods from parents. I think I've struck a chord here. I mean, this is something we're familiar with. And so what's the next natural reaction? To get as close to the line as we can without crossing over, right? And so then you say, Mom, he's on my side. I'm not on my side. I'm right on the line. You get right up as close as you can. That's a human, that's a natural human response. And when it comes to sin, if we can find a line, a natural human response is to get just as close to it as possible without crossing it. I just want to get as close as I can without crossing the line. Maybe the question we should be asking is not how little can I get away with, but how much can I serve God with what I have? And so, although there are hundreds of books written on how to go from being poor to being rich, maybe those of us who are rich, and that would encompass everyone in this room, could think about serving God with what we have. Last week, we talked about becoming like our teachers. Well, that's a question for us. Who is our master? In fact, Jesus would say later on in the book of Luke that no servant can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the, love the other, or he will despise the one and be loyal to the other. You cannot serve both God and money. And I heard a preacher once say that we probably prefer the old language of the King James here, God and mammon. And we like to say you can't serve both God and mammon because we really don't know what mammon is. And so as long as we don't know what it is, we kind of like that translation. But we can't serve both God and wealth. So as we think about the first blessing and woe that Jesus gives us, we know that we're called to serve God with what we have. But then he talks about those who are hungry. Blessed are the hungry and woe to those who are full. Have you ever been truly hungry? I want you to just imagine what it feels like to be completely and truly hungry, that you just, you're weak and you feel that gnawing pang of hunger in the inside, and you know that you need something to eat. You see, chances are what we think of as hunger might not even pass for what it means to be truly hungry if we were to talk to people in other parts of the world. You may have experienced true hunger. I don't know that I have. But when we think about what it means to truly be hungry, and we see people throughout the New Testament that fought that, that fight, that battle of trying to find out where their next meal was going to come from, I want to remind us of a, a story of a rich man that Luke would tell us about later in the Gospel. It was a rich man who had been given a great deal of wealth. His crops were doing very well, and so it had filled up the barns that he had, and he had a decision to make. What is he going to do? He has all of these crops and all of these blessings, and his decision is the only logical alternative is to build bigger barns and to put all of my stuff in there. And then listen to this response. Soul, you have have many goods laid up for many years. Take your ease. Eat, drink, and be merry. And sometimes when we gather up all of our blessings, we have that tendency to want to store it in one place and eat, drink, and be merry. What's interesting to me is how many different people that man could have fed with all of those crops. Can you imagine if he just maybe looked around him and said, well, maybe I can start giving some of this away. God's blessed me richly. Maybe I could give it to someone else. His only thoughts were of himself, so the only logical conclusion was, I'll just take it easy, eat, drink, and be merry. And we know at the end of that story that his soul was required of him. He was trusting in himself. He was living for the food he had on earth, the blessings he had on earth, and he wasn't living for God. As we think about the, the importance, not only of understanding what it means to, to be hungry and to care for those in needs, but it's also important for us to realize another misfit in Luke has a great deal to tell us about this. Have you noticed other cultures, which might have far less than we do, have a little better handle on sharing food with those who are hungry? This past summer on our trip to the Ukraine, we were going into our night session of singing and nightly activity, and I was uh, holding one of the small girls there as we were all crowded around and singing, and she was happy and smiling, and, and right as I opened my mouth to sing a note in whatever song we were singing, it was in Russian, so I probably didn't know what we were singing, but I was trying to sing along, and I opened my mouth, she put in my mouth, a crumpled up piece of bread that apparently she had picked up at one of the meals that day. Don't know how long she'd had it. I uh, don't know how long she'd been carrying it around or if she'd had it when we were outside playing or, or where put uh, she was putting it. She didn't have any pockets in her dress so she had to have it in her hand the whole time and her hands were pretty dirty and so she just kind of stuffed it in my mouth and then she looked at me, you know, real excited and I just looked at her and slowly chewed and Tried not to think about the the germs, you know, that might be in that little piece of bread. But what was interesting to me looking back on that was that, especially when we saw their rations of food, that this was very special to her. This was precious to her, and she was sharing it with me. Sometimes people who have so much less than we do have such a better handle on taking care of those who are hungry. And so there's one of the misfits in Luke's gospel that helps us understand this. The misfit is Lazarus. And when we see the story of the rich man and Lazarus, Lazarus is a poor man that's waiting at the rich man's gate. The rich man eats, Luke would say, sumptuously, not just eating, but he's eating well. And he doesn't feed Lazarus. Lazarus longs just for the scraps that fall from his table, but he doesn't give it to him. And you have to wonder how many times the rich man passed by Lazarus. How many times did he see him laying there, maybe with the dogs around that would gather to lick his sores? How many times did he think to himself, boy, I can't wait for my meal? and he'd have to step over Lazarus to get there. Surely it would have been easy for him to step out of his home and to share those scraps with Lazarus. I mean, he wasn't expected to feed the whole world, just the one man that was outside his gate. And we see Jesus' words in Luke 6 fulfilled. He says, woe to those who are full, for you will be hungry. Lazarus, when they have passed from this world into the next, is in torment. He does long for something. Uh, The rich man longs for Lazarus, rather, to take his finger, to dip it in water, and to cool his tongue. The rich man did long for something. And as we think about the importance of feeding those who are hungry, it's important for us to remember the stories of the rich fool and the rich man. Rather than gathering up for ourselves, we need to help each other. Matthew, in his account of the Beatitudes, would say that those who are blessed who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Think about that hunger feeling again. When's the last time you hungered for righteousness that much? You just couldn't wait to come and study God's Word. You were just thirsting for more spiritual knowledge. You couldn't wait to have that conversation with your friend or family member. We need to hunger for what really counts. Jesus would also talk about those who are weeping. All of us can relate to what it means to to weep, to mourn. In fact, there are probably many of us here this, this morning that are in that stage of weeping or sorrow. And you know, when we come together and we all dress up and we all smile at each other and shake everybody's hands, sometimes it's difficult to remember that there are those of us here who are struggling. And it might be that you're struggling with the loss of a family member. It might be that you're struggling with a problem at home. It could be that you're caught in just the fog of of depression and you can't see a way out and and you're just just struggling and, and you're mourning and you're hurting. And so many times we can be blind to that. And a room like this one full of Christians can seem like the loneliest place in the world because we believe that no one else is struggling or hurting. It's interesting that when we see Jesus' life, he shows us that it's not wrong to weep. He shows us it's not wrong to struggle with sorrow. And when we have difficulties in our lives, struggling with emotions isn't a sign of faithlessness. It's not a sign that we don't believe in God. It's a sign that we're human. And Jesus, 100% divine and 100% human, wept at the tomb of a friend. Jesus rustled with agony in the Garden of Gethsemane. And it's important for us to realize that sorrows are natural. Luke tells us in just a a few verses after this discourse in the Sermon on the Plain about a sinful woman that comes to Jesus. She's crying as well. She's crying so much that she washes his feet with her tears and she pours all of this expensive perfume that she has over his feet. People become upset because they think if Jesus knew what kind of woman this was, he wouldn't allow this to happen. But it's interesting to notice why she's crying. She's crying because she's very sinful. She realizes her sins, and she knows that Jesus has the power to forgive them. In Luke chapter 7, in verse 40 and following, Jesus tells a story illustrating the importance of forgiveness. And then in verse 48, he says to her, your sins are forgiven. In verse 50, he would tell her, your faith has saved you go in peace. She wept because she knew she was sinful. She knew that she needed God's saving grace. And sometimes we can become so overcome with sin, that it just causes us to weep, doesn't it? We're just sorrowful for what has taken place. And so as we think about what it means to weep, sometimes those of us who are, are comforted and, and are happy and maybe we're living a good life, we feel a little bit separated from that weeping. But we need to realize that we're all susceptible to human emotions. Jesus shows us that. And when we mourn, we know that we've got a promise of a spiritual comfort that we can't even imagine. We also need to realize that when we struggle with sin to the point we're just weeping, we serve a Lord who can forgive us, just like this misfit, this sinful woman that Luke describes. Lastly, Jesus talks about those who are suffering persecution. Now, this is a concept we're probably not as familiar with, really being persecuted for our faith. Have you ever thought about the fact that the church in acts grew greatly when they were persecuted? The more the persecution intensified, the more the gospel was spread. And yet in a land of religious freedom, it's difficult for us to do the same thing. We just simply don't understand persecution the same way the first century world would have understood it. And it's just a few minutes as we wrap up these thoughts. I want to remind us of this. If we stand up for God, eventually someone is going to be upset with us. When Jesus says, woe to you, and all men speak well of you, he's saying, if you're standing up for my word, there are some people who are going to be upset. Jesus Christ lived a perfect life, and yet he did not make everyone happy. And if he couldn't do that because of the attitudes of other people, how can I expect to do the same thing? And so as we think about living as those who are persecuted, we have to realize that if we stand up for something, we're going to be susceptible to attack. In fact, just a few chapters before Jesus would say these words, John the Baptist would be preaching. And John's definitely a misfit. Someone out in the wilderness eating locusts and wild honey. I mean, he's someone that was on the fringes of society, and yet it didn't matter who talked to him, whether it was just the average ordinary person, whether it was a a soldier, or, or whether it was a tax collector that came to him. He preached the same word. It ended up getting him killed. But Luke tells us one of the misfits that was willing to stand up for something, even when it cost him persecution. So how can the comfortable become like those who are persecuted? We have to realize that when we stand up for God, we'll make some people unhappy. And God calls us to live to please him, not those around us. I love what Joe said in his prayer, looking not for men's praise, but for God's. That's our goal of living. And so as we think about these blessings and woes, lastly, it's important for us to remember Jesus understood what he was asking. Jesus lived as a carpenter's son, That wouldn't have put him in a high social class among the Jews. He wouldn't have been in that large tax bracket. He knew what it was like to be hungry because when he was taken and tempted by the devil, he went 40 days and 40 nights without eating. And in the understatement of of the whole book of Luke, in Luke chapter four, verse two, it says, and at the end of all these things, he was hungry. Jesus knew what it meant to be hungry. He knew what it meant to weep over a friend. He also knew what it meant to be persecuted. And so as we think of these blessings and woes. Jesus isn't asking us to do something that he wasn't willing to do. Last week, we asked, were you ready to be a student? This week, I'm asking, are you ready to be a misfit? Are you ready not to fit in? Because if you're more concerned about being poor, as Matthew would say, poor in spirit, than you are with attaining great wealth, you're not going to fit in at work. When you're more concerned with taking care of other people's needs than meeting your own physical needs, you're not going to fit in with those people around you. When you're concerned with comforting those who mourn, and you know that when you mourn, we don't weep as those who have no hope, as Paul would write to the Thessalonians. We weep as someone who has a promise of a spiritual comfort. You're going to be different than the world. And as we focus on being persecuted and standing up for what God thinks, we're going to stand out. Jesus knew what he was asking for us because he'd experienced it himself. And as we follow him, we'll experience as we walk in his steps those same aspects of life. If you're here this morning... And you want to begin that journey. You want to accept the forgiveness he's offered for you. You want to submit your life to him and begin walking that Christ-like path. Put him on in baptism and begin that life of faith. There was no better time than right now when you're surrounded by a group of people who would love nothing more than to be your brothers and sisters in Christ. If there's any way that we can help you, please come forward as we stand and sing together. So good to see each of you here this morning.